If you have a Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, which describes the baptism of Jesus. Now, when we read this passage of scripture, when we read about the baptism of Jesus, not only are we being told about Jesus' baptism, we're also being told about our baptism. The case is because Jesus is the Messiah. And being the Messiah means that what God says to and does in the Messiah, he says to us. You see, again and again, and this is the key, as the Messiah, Jesus represents his people. And you get that by having read the story up to this moment. So if you've read through the Bible, all these pages that precede this, it's been defining who the Messiah is. And at the core of it is that the Messiah represents God's people. And so what is true of the Messiah is true of God's people. And so as we turn our attention to this passage, we're listening together not only to learn facts about things that Jesus did and things that happened to him, we're learning to listen for God's voice and what God says to us and what God teaches us and what God is showing us about ourselves and this world. So this morning, three lessons from Jesus' baptism that we need to learn to see about our own baptisms and about our lives as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you can learn to see here what awaits you if you would become a Christian. Let's start at verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening. Now, remember, this is a story. When we read a passage here, we're reading a passage this far into a story. And so this whole business of the heavens opening, this has come up before now. This has been at play before we get to this moment. Now, what does it mean that Jesus saw the heavens opening? Well, what it does not mean is that Jesus had amazing vision and he could see a million miles away, way, way, way out past Pluto and some little door cracked open out in the sky somewhere. Heaven in the Bible is not a location. It's a dimension. It's a dimension of this reality that we don't normally get to see. There are special moments when the veil between heaven and earth gets thin. But if you've been reading the Bible up till now, you do not think that that means Jesus saw something far off. If you've been reading the Bible up till now, if you let the Bible define its categories, what you know it means is that the veil got thin, is that Jesus saw a dimension that you don't normally get to see. Heaven in the Bible is God's ordinary dimension. It's, where, it's God's home, and it overlaps and it interlocks with earth. So here's our first lesson. In your baptism, like in Jesus' baptism, 
There is more going on than meets the eye. There are things happening that just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not happening. Here's the irony of our age, our disenchanted age. We believe that about germs, but we don't believe it about heaven. We've lost the capacity for the world to be enchanted with heaven But boy, have we gained the capacity to believe there are these microorganisms that you can't see, kids. So wash your hands after doing certain things and don't stick them in my mouth. And we live by the reality of germs. A lesson we learn at our baptism is we need to learn to live again like the world lived before the scientific revolution. We need to refuse... The cheap deal we struck that science is real and heaven is not. And we need to learn to live by the reality of heaven. Look, so much of the Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by the reality of heaven. I hope you have memorized the Lord's Prayer. If you have, say it. Let's say it together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Look, so many of you clearly have it memorized, or you just looked in the worship guide in a few minutes where it's listed. I hope you all memorize it, and I hope that you will develop a habit that there is a moment in your morning where you start praying it without even thinking. Whether it's in the shower, or when you're tying your shoes, or before you eat your breakfast, or for some of us, it's the first thing that comes in our mind when we awake. Because the very first line of it is this lesson. Our Father who is in heaven. Lord, today I live in a disenchanted world. And at the best, I believe that means you're far off. And at the worst, it means I can't hardly believe in you. Help me today to believe in heaven. That it is an overlapping, interlocking dimension of this reality. That it is here. That my father is in heaven means precisely you are near. That you are overlapping with me. That there's not a moment today when I will think a thing when I am not in your presence. There's not a moment today where I will do a thing that I do not do in your presence. That ever, help me to live this day in the Latin, the phrase is caram Deo, before the face of God. Help me learn how in the ordinary monotony of my work today, to remember more than I remembered yesterday, that I am before your face. When I'm filling out that report, you are there. When I'm reading, you are there. 
When I'm making the widgets, you're there. When I'm performing the phone calls, you're there. That at every moment of my day, I am living in the reality of heaven. Help me to know this. Help me to learn to live like this. That's the first lesson for all of us this morning about what it means to have been baptized. It means that that we live at this intersection of heaven and earth. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And we have no problem with that when it comes to germs. But boy, do we struggle with that when it comes to God. The second lesson comes up in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Look, any early Christian reading this passage would have, of course, believed that at their own baptism into Jesus the Messiah, There was a moment when the curtain had been drawn back and in that moment of their baptism, they became children of God. That their baptism was their adoption ceremony. And in that moment, they not only became children of God, they received the spirit of God and God delighted in them. No early Christian would have read this passage and thought that every line, the heaven opening, the spirit descending, and the declaration of the love of the Father did not occur in the moment they were baptized. At your baptism, just as surely as the water was poured or sprinkled or you were dunked in it, God spoke these words over you. And you may have been baptized as a Catholic or Baptist or a Mennonite or Presbyterian, a Pentecostal or Lutheran or non-denominational or Orthodox or Methodist. The list goes on. You may have been dunked or sprinkled or the water poured. It might have been outside in a river or in a swimming pool or a hot tub. It might have been in a church building. You may remember it and you may not remember it. But when you were baptized, the heavens opened and God spoke these words. And you know what? You might not have heard them. In fact, here at Jesus' baptism, it doesn't appear anybody heard the words. It doesn't appear that anybody saw the heavens being opened. It doesn't appear in this story that anybody saw the spirit descending like a dove descends or heard the voice of the father, but it happened. We believe things happen that we can't see. That's what we've just replaced the spiritual with the scientific. We have a whole bunch of faith in that. This Happened, And this is so important. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up at this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but he sees us as baptized into Jesus and therefore beloved and well-pleasing. 
Now, how does this come about? How does this wild, extravagant, disruptive, affirming love of the creator come into our life and into this world to heal this world? Well, that's what Mark wants you to ask at the beginning of the gospel. He wants you to say, holy moly. How can this be? And then it takes the whole rest of Mark's gospel to show how this works out, particularly in Jesus' death and resurrection. And it'll take all of that to explain what this wild, untamable God is up to in Jesus. And I know that for some of us, some of us have never had the kind of support, this kind of unconditional love for whatever reasons. You know, your parents... They were Swedish or something. I don't know. I told you I loved you the day you were born. I'll let you know if it changes. Or your spouse, maybe just the pattern of their relationship. Or your work. Affirmation for you has so often been contingent on performance that this is a weird kind of math. This is a weird kind of logic. Some of us have the kind of backgrounds and experiences that... Accepting God's love is easy. There's plenty of us. I mean, just, I'm the baby in my family. I have never walked in a room where I had the thought, somebody in here probably won't like me. My presumption in a room is that everybody likes me. <laughs> it really is. Now, and, and my presumption is we'll all be friends and that when I meet you, the person I meet is who you are all day long for the rest of your life. And my wife is like, Phew. you really think that, Aubrey? Like, I come home from a party and say, I made three friends. And she's like, no, you didn't. (laughs) They don't know you. You don't know them. If you weren't born last, then you should change that. It's a great place to start out life from. Others of us um, were unfortunately born in the middle or into a different family. Or you've had these deforming, life-changing experiences. And, or maybe it's just a function of your personality or your temperament, of your own way of being in the world, but for whatever reason. But look, I'm not really right now talking about a feeling. What you feel, I'm talking about an objective piece of reality. God loves to work with us wherever we fall. And here's a lesson to learn. For every baptized and believing Christian, God looks at you and says, you are my dear child. You are well-pleasing. I delight in you. There is nothing we can do to to make God love us more. He already brought the full weight of it. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do, I can do to make him love me less. This is our second lesson. Being a Christian is learning to hear God's loving affirmation. It's learning to read this passage and say, you love me. It's picking up on all those times in in the letter to the Philippians where Paul says, and my God. Not just the God. In Galatians where he says, God loves me and he sent his son to die for me. Never doubt God's love. Because God's love never ceases. 
Just as God cannot cease to be, his love can't cease to be. Christian faith means believing God loves us. He's delighted in us. He adopted us at our baptism. We are his beloved children. Martin Luther said when the, the reformer said that when he really struggled with his faith, he would grab himself by his baptism and say, but Luther, you were baptized. Whether he, he didn't remember it because he had been baptized as a baby. Baptism happened. It is an authorized ritual. And God promises his people that when his church gathers and does that, he will adopt and pour out his spirit and forgive sins. And look, just like our government says that if I say I pronounce you husband and wife in a certain ritual, you are. Whether you have a traumatic car accident and can never remember that moment again, that happened. One more lesson from Jesus' baptism. In addition to learning to live by the reality of heaven and knowing that God loves us, a third lesson we need to hear God teaching us is this. Baptism leads to vocation. And your baptism means you can go with courage to your work. Let me show you. Notice what happens to Jesus as soon as he's baptized. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now to understand what's going on here, just remember Jesus submitted to John's baptism of repentance. That's what it's called in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for the, repent, for the forgiveness of sins. Why does Jesus do this? Jesus had not sinned. Have you ever thought about this? If baptism was for repentance for the forgiveness of sins, why does Jesus get baptized? He's not ever sinned. The reason Jesus submits to his baptism is not because he's a sinner, but remember what I said at the beginning? It's because the Messiah represents his people. In going to his baptism, Jesus was officially taking a step of total solidarity with sinful humanity, a solidarity that will inexorably lead him to the cross. So by sharing in Israel's baptism of repentance, he's committed himself fully to the Father's call on his life to be the Messiah, to be the obedient servant who would be innocent yet counted among the wicked because he bears the sins of many. My point is that move into the wilderness, that was Jesus' vocation, it was his calling. It was his job, and his job was tough. Look what happens at his job. It's full of temptation and persecution and frustration. Like your work and like my work. Jesus' work, just like your work, was in a field full of thorns and thistles. But he commits himself to it. Jesus' baptism, in part, was his surrender to the vocation of totally identifying with humanity. And then right away, he's literally, it says the Spirit drove him. It's actually ekbalo. It's the same word in Greek used for exorcisms. The Spirit cast him out as forcefully 
as Jesus casts out demons from people, the same spirit that descended on him like a gift, then cast him into his vocation. I feel like that. I feel like God... You know, when I was four years old, I said I was going to become a pastor. And I was such a naive, little, last-born, thought-the-world-was-rosy kid. (laughs) And some of you know what it's like. You signed up and showed up for work, and it wasn't as fun or as easy. You had children, and one day the shine wore off. And you thought physical fatigue was rough. Or you became grandparents. Or you bought a house in a neighborhood next to a particular neighbor. See, these vocations as workers, as citizens, as neighbors, as parents. You see, in Scripture, it's interesting. In Mark's gospel, wilderness is not a lovely cabin in the woods. It is not a place where anybody built a retreat center. In the Bible, wilderness is the realm of evil. It's where the evil powers are. In the Bible, wilderness becomes a metaphor for the places lurking with predatory beasts. So Jesus, his vocation, sends him into Satan's territory. And so does yours. Not by accident, but by purpose. Remember, the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. And the Gospels describe the climactic moment of the long day of the Bible. In the Gospels, here is God himself in the flesh as one of us. Do you feel it? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are itching for battle. The Spirit, which has just now been poured out on Jesus, hurls him into the wilderness where he will inevitably clash with Satan. It's as though the Spirit is just spoiling for a fight. And if you keep reading through Mark's gospel, you'll see that this is just the first. This is just the first engagement with battle. Now, what does this have to do with you and me and our baptisms? It's this. Whatever your job Whatever your career, whatever your vocation, whether you're a pastor like me or a teacher or an artist, a mental health professional, a business person, a physician, a student, if you work in finance or wait tables or serve coffee or work in law or politics or the food industry, whatever your vocation, it's hard, isn't it? It's tough, not just because your boss is a jerk. Not just because the systems are inadequate, but because our vocations are our casting out of, this is God casting us out into the wilderness. So how do we sustain it? Week after week, the difficulties, the trials, the wear and tear of being a homemaker, a teacher, a mechanic, a welder, a pilot, working in landscape, cutting hair, going to school. If work is a battle and it is a long journey, how can we make it to the end? 
and not be like the older people on the job that we don't want to become like. Well, let me tell you a story. I told this many years ago, a decade ago, but it's about this amazing woman named Sheila Cassidy. She's a well-known British writer and doctor. She's known especially for her work in the hospice movement. When she was 38 years old, she went to Chile to serve the poor as a physician. After a couple of years, there was a military coup. A few years later, this was in 1975, she made the dreadful mistake of giving medical care to Nelson Gutierrez. He was a wounded political opponent of Augusto Pinochet, the dictator. As a result of caring for the dictator's political opponent, she was arrested, she was imprisoned, she was brutally tortured in the notorious Villa Grimaldi near Santiago. Eventually, she was rescued, and for over a decade, she struggled with nightmarish depression. Once she was speaking in Cheltenham, England, where Janelle and I lived with our kids for a few years. And after she spoke, she was asked, how in the world can a person survive psychologically the brutal sexual torture she had experienced? And then all the depression that followed. In the Q&A, in response to that question, Sheila Cassidy said, You need images of God that are adequate to the journey in life. This takes us right into the heart of our passage this morning. Think about this. What image of God was lodged in Jesus' mind as he journeyed into the wilderness? The Father, a gentle and generous gift giver, extravagantly pouring out his spirit on his son. The father declaring that Jesus is his beloved child. The father speaking of his pleasure in his child. What is your image of God? Is it of a father as a gentle and generous gift giver? As well pleased? What is your image of God? Because we need to attend carefully to our images of God. We need to have the courage to wake up tomorrow on a Monday and go forth into our work as an act of obedience to our vocation in order to draw the world into the passion. If we start the journey imagining that God is distant, our Father who is in heaven, a long way off. I better pray a long time this morning because this has to get light years out there somewhere. See, if we start the journey imagining that God is distant or that God is a bully or that he's moody 
or that he's capricious, or that he's an angry, threatening parent ready to yell at us, slam the door on us, kick us out into the street because we haven't made the grade. What would happen at the first whisper of a temptation? We'll fall. But if we remember the voice that spoke those powerful words of love at our baptism, if like Luther, we can learn to say, Aubrey, you were baptized. The heavens opened in that Baptist church in Shreveport, Louisiana. The spirit descended. You were adopted. The father said he was well pleased. Don't place yourself above God with your intellect. We need to put ourselves beneath him with our hearts so that our hearts become still before the Father. God's love is key to the world that we live in and it's the answer for anyone who's seeking the truth. Look at it this way. Just look at the structure of the passage. Verses 10 to 11, God's love and affirmation. Verses 12 to 13, the challenge and battle and suffering of vocation. Verses 13b, the angels ministering to Jesus. The angels, do you see that they didn't keep Jesus from being tested by Satan? And they did not keep him a few pages later from Calvary. So what are they doing? They are assuring him that his beloved father is with him, watching over him, there, loving him, acting through him, pouring out his spirit all the time in and through him. Jesus went the way that all of us must go. And he could do this because he heard the words and the love of the father. Now, I suppose there are some in this room who are baptized. But you're not living like it. You are far from living the life of a beloved child of God. Good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ is about to host a meal. And it's a welcome home party. And he's inviting you to his table. And all you've got to do is come to the table. Come on home. Come home for dinner. God loves sinners. He takes our sin onto himself and he offers us new life. God's grace is the antidote to our guilt and shame. There is no sin so great. There is no mistake so big that God's grace gets held back. Heaven itself has drawn near. The spirit as a dove has descended. The new creation has begun. The barrier between heaven and earth has been ripped apart. The power of the new age has begun to flood the earth and the father's voice is speaking. Let's keep learning to be Christians. Let's keep learning to live by the reality of heaven, to hear God's affirmation. And with courage, let's go tomorrow, one more week into our vocations. Let's pray.